This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, November 25th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Andrew Pack. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through chapters 3, verse 5. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, not in person, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that when we were that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. It's the word of the Lord. Y'all can have a seat. You please go with me to Second Thess- or pardon me, First Thessalonians chapter two, verse seventeen. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the pastor of discipleship here for Restoration Road Church. Um, let's pray. King Jesus, as we hear about our family that has gone to be with you, Paul and Timothy and and uh, Sylvanus and the church in Thessalonica. I pray that we wouldn't just see this as a story, but a history of your movement in the world, the way you've moved and helped and guided your church, and the way that a church lives in response to the reality that you came and gave your life to save us from ourselves, and in so doing, you have set us free. I pray that we would understand that this is a text about what it is to live in the freedom of the Gospel uh, behind enemy lines in a dark and broken world. I pray that, that despite the fact we're going to talk about sacrifice and affliction, we would find joy in our possession. That, that we own You and You own us. That You are Yours and we, are, we belong to You. We are Yours. Uh, Lord, uh, my, my frame is frail. Uh, And I just confess, I think I've let that be too much of a distraction approaching this text. And so I pray that you would liberate me from that and that I could focus on your word. Pray that whatever's just of me would be forgotten, but Holy Spirit, whatever's being enlivened by you would would sink in our hearts and help us to glorify uh, the holy name of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, empower us to hear your word and to be changed by it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus for your glory and for our joy, Jesus Christ. Amen. So here we are, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. All Christian life is sacrifice. Uh, perhaps amending the statement for clarity and the kind of sacrifice we're talking about, all Christian life is joyful sacrifice. 
Uh, As the people of God, we have been liberated from our sin. We have been saved by Jesus. He has come to set us free, to make us His. He has laid down His life for us. And in response to what He has done for us, at the core of the Christian life, is laying aside who we are apart from Him. Laying aside the things of our comfort and personal desire. And all these things that are just the things of us. And turning to Jesus and responding to Him as living as a living sacrifice for Him. And responding the way that He's laid down His life for us by laying our life down for our brothers and sisters in Christ. By responding the way that He laid His life down for us while we were lost. By laying our lives down and laying our comfort down and laying our preferences down that people would come to know the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you're operating in the Spirit, when you're walking in Christ's ways, when you are serving Him, uh, and that is a sacrifice to our old self, it is a freedom. It is a joy. It is a gift. And as we turn to Paul here, his writing in 1 Thessalonians, inspired by the Spirit, we're going to hear from Paul about his interaction with a church that he sacrifices for. That he loves desperately. And even for the sacrifices he's made as a Gospel worker. And so, we are in an interesting spot. So we are in a narrative text. Paul usually in his letters, uh, he's usually writing something uh, that's more like a point-by-point doctrine uh, kind of thesis. And by that I mean, he writes things like Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.24, next. And he kind of moves through it with a progression and, and, and a kind of sense to it. Now this is sensical, but this is a narrative. He's telling a story. Now this is true of this place and any other story in the Bible. Uh, they're not just randomly here. They're not just here for fun. And honestly, sometimes they're even very good stories, but they're not even just here because they are good stories. There are theological narratives with spiritual implications. And here's what I mean by that. Theology, that's just a fancy way to say the study of God. They're about God. They're a story about God. Paul is telling them something on purpose to tell them something about Jesus. Okay? This is true of any narrative we find in the text. This is sometimes why the Bible drives us crazy when you say, Moses or whoever who wrote the thing, but I have this question about this story. Uh, in Genesis, we hear that Enoch was not, for the Lord took him. And you say, Lord, I want to know about uh, Enoch's backstory, and I want to know about, uh, you know, how exactly was he taken? And you have all these details you're interested in. And Moses doesn't give us those details. Why? Because we're asking questions Moses isn't trying to answer. He's actually trying to show us something about God's movement in the world. And here we have a theological narrative. He's trying to show us something about what God is doing in Paul's church planning team and in the church in Thessalonica. Likewise, it is also a theological narrative. It's a history. It's a narrative. I want to be careful with that word. It's a history. It's true. We believe the Bible is true in absolutely everything that it says. Uh, So it's a theological narrative. It's showing us things about God. And at the same time, it has spiritual implications. And here's what I mean. I mean that this isn't just something that's just for them. This is something that's for us. There's, There's things in here for us to learn and to grow from. Now, so what we'll do is to, to kind of get some of that stuff out. Uh, we'll walk our way through the text. We'll hit everything that he says, make comments on them, and then I'll kind of pull out from there some observations and implications for us from the text. So here we are. We're in chapter 2, verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians. But since we were torn away from you, this is Paul writing to the church, but since we were torn away from you, brothers or brothers and sisters, but since we were torn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time, in person, not in heart, 
we endeavor more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Now he's talking about a church that's near and dear to his heart. In uh, just a few verses above, in chapter 2, verse 8, he says this amazing thing. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the Gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. My hope is that you can say something like that about this church if this church is home. So he's, he's not just saying that I will share the Gospel with you, which we are eager to do. And if you're in here today and you are not a Christian, we are eager to share the good news of Jesus with you. We are eager to tell you that Jesus is God who rose from the dead. We are eager to tell you about His cross where He paid the price for all of our sin. We are eager to tell you even about sin. Sin is all the wrong things we've done. It's all the right things we've done for the wrong reasons. It's everywhere we put ourselves at the center of everything that's happening. It's all the good things we've chosen not to do. And it's all the things we've done against the one true God of the universe. And the reality is the sum total of those offenses are so grievous and so serious that we ourselves cannot make ourselves right. We ourselves cannot justify ourselves. We ourselves cannot get up to God. But we as Christians understand the good news of the Gospel is that God who we've sinned against so mightily has come to rescue us from ourselves and save us from ourselves. And becoming a Christian isn't where you get your life cleaned up and you put on your Sunday best or whatever and come in here and, and have it all together and pretend like everything's perfect. Being a Christian is coming to the cross of Jesus Christ with empty hands saying, I need you, please help me, please save me. And knowing that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is called grace. You can't earn it. It's a gift. So not only is he eager to share them this truth of the Gospel, but we ourselves. He's eager to be in a deep relationship with these people. He's eager to know them and to love them and to serve them, which, by the way, is the natural byproduct of the Christian life. We're talking about joyful Christian sacrifice. When you come to know and love people this way, you become willing to make sacrifices for these people that you love. And that sacrifice we make is rooted in the reality that Jesus has sacrificed for us first. The reality is that Jesus has given His life to save you from yourself. So why would you give your life to serve other people who he has also saved or, or the people he might save or, or for his glory and worship of him. Why wouldn't you give of yourself and lay aside the comfort? But these are the people he's talking about, these people he's so desirous for, they're dear to him. But since we were torn away from you, I mean, hear that language. Because we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in, in person, not in heart. What a wonderful thing to say. I can say this with confidence. If your elders were taken away from you, uh, if Sam or Mark or Russell were taken away from this church and exiled to Everett or Marysville or you know wherever. Not, these are not derogatory comments about Everett, Everett or Marysville, by the way. I'm just making things up. You could say Chehalis or Centralia or you know, Tacoma. If they were exiled to Tacoma. right? No one likes Tacoma, right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I really like Tacoma. Tacoma is awesome. It really is. That their desire would be to be back here with the church. Right? And this is, this is how Paul feels. There's been a, a sacrifice made on his part as they were torn away. I mean, that language, torn away from them. For a short time in person, but not in heart. So his heart is still with them. His love is still for them. This is true of those who, who uh, plant churches or go on mission or whatever. You know, they often feel that. I was, I was at a conference recently, Seaside, uh, with the North American Baptists. They have missionaries 
who are in the middle of a civil war uh, in Africa. Those missionaries uh, were told by the embassy, it's time to go. And they said, listen, the people we are serving here have not had the opportunity to go. There is nowhere for them to go. So we are not going anywhere. We are going to stay in the middle of the civil war and continue to minister to the people we're ministering to. Amazing, right? So these missionaries in the middle of a civil war, in the middle of Africa, send a text to one of the guys back in Seaside, Oregon. Have you ever been to Seaside, Oregon? It's pleasant. It's pleasant. And there's no civil wars there. Right? And they send the text back to us to say, please tell everyone we are praying for you all. We love you. We miss you. Right? In the middle of chaos, they're sending text messages of love and prayer because their heart is still with these people who they love, these people who have sent them out. But since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. There is something beautiful about sitting with a Christian brother or sister and seeing them face to face, is there not? There's something really amazing, especially as a Christian person, when you get to see that brother or sister you have not seen for a long time and you just really easily and naturally pick up from where you left off. Uh, when you meet those people who are so devoted to Jesus that you quickly just begin to say, what has the Spirit been doing in your life? And here's the miracles Jesus has done in my ministry. And you, and you just pick up where you left off. There's, but there's something special about face-to-face. I mean, even in our time and place, maybe this is a social commentary, even like FaceTime and stuff. FaceTime simply isn't the same as even just like looking at someone eye to eye. I mean, this is, this is why I think live preaching, I mean, that's a weird conversation. Even, no one would even think of that in, you know, 1850 that you wouldn't do live preaching. But, you know, there's people set up video venues in the world and people just watch some guy preaching on a video. But you can't like look somebody in the eye, right? And, and the video isn't going to respond to what the Spirit's doing in the room when you're all together. There's something special about being face-to-face. And he's desiring that and he misses them. What a great pastor Paul is. Now listen, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. So he was trying to get to them and Satan was getting in the way of him getting to them. Satan is real. He hates you if you're a Christian. Well, he hates you if you're not a Christian person. Satan is real. He hates you and he wants you to die. Now, the Bible often talks about, when it's talking about Satan, uh, it's kind of talking about Satan in that kind of figurehead sense. You know, um, I don't know that we talk about, we don't have this framework, but like uh, in England, you know, they've often talked about the, queen, the queen's fleet or whatever. Like the queen's not on the, the fleet shooting cannonballs. It's just her fleet doing stuff, but there's sort of this representatory sense that the queen's doing stuff. Well, she's not. The poor guy on the boat shooting cannonballs is doing stuff, right? She's in a palace. He's shooting cannonballs. Uh, when the Bible talks about Satan, Satan, there's Satan and malevolent forces called demons. Now, those demons are Satan's servants. He, they are at work in the world. They are against people who don't love Jesus. They are against the people of Jesus. This is very real. And we can fall into one or two ditches. On one side, we pretend like we're not in the middle of a war. We pretend like Satan is not real. We miss the truth that Satan does hate you and he wants you to die. That's one side. The other side is that we make it all about Satan all the time. As my professor Gary Brashears once said, uh, Satan isn't behind every bush. But there are bushes and Satan is behind many of them. Satan is really hates you. He wants you to die. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, he really, really wants you to die. He will give you anything. He will give you uh, fame, fortune, money, comfort, 
uh, 10,000 Twitter followers or whatever your idol is. Uh, he'll give you addiction and the things of your addiction. He'll give you hatred. He'll give you bitterness. He'll give you anger. He'll give you spite. He'll give you all of those things as long as you won't love Jesus. He doesn't care as long as you don't love Jesus. That's a fact. And we as Christian people need to be careful because this is reality. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers of all time, used this metaphor. Satan is like a dragon who's had his head cut off. He's defeated. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. Uh, we are not owned by Satan. We belong to the, the dominion of light. We belong to Jesus. Uh, he has us. Satan is like a dragon that's had his head cut off. He is defeated, but his tail's still whipping around with some spikes taking some people out while he's going down. Uh, and I think we need to be careful and we need to be watchful uh, because we can't be possessed or owned by Satan, but sometimes Satan beats the drum and we like the rhythm. Sometimes, sometimes there's some stuff we get angry about or bitter about or some strife or something. Something against God in, in the world and we get into it. And we need to be careful. Uh, not only that, Christians, brothers and sisters, uh, Martin Luther said this, that if the devil can't make you bad, he will make you busy. Satan does not want you pushing the kingdom agenda forward. Satan does not want you dreaming about being a missionary and going into the dark places where there, are, where there is no light and pushing back the darkness further. Satan doesn't want you dreaming about a, a bigger ministry or praying for people who need to get saved. Satan doesn't want any of those things in your life. In fact, we're told in the Scriptures that, that you believe that God is one? Well, you do well because even the demons believe. Here's the thing. Demons believe in the power of your prayer more than you do. Demons believe in the power of foreign missions more than you do. Demons are more afraid of you telling your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus about Him and have more belief that that person actually might become a Christian than you do. And these things scare them. They're trying to push the kingdom back. The kingdom's going forward. We are the people of light. Satan is trying to hinder Paul here. So be careful. I mean, we can be so complacent. You just want to sit in your comfortable chair and watch that rerun of Seinfeld you've seen like 15 times. Right? You just want a break. You've had a hard day. And I'm not saying Saint, you know, Seinfeld is satanic. The words kind of go together. You know, like it doesn't. And I'm not saying it's wrong for you to relax from time to time. But we relax an awful lot. And we think our time is ours an awful lot if we are not careful. The love of comfort is a dangerous thing. And sometimes more dangerous than, than, than we even realize. We keep going. So Satan is hindering Paul. He's doing something to stop Paul and his gospel work in Thessalonica, verse 19. Listen, this is why he's stopping them. So the four is there for. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? So implicit here is that, that Paul really believes Jesus is going to come and wipe all the tears away from all the eyes. Jesus is going to return. He's going to put everything the way it ought to be. But he said some things here that we need to pay attention to. What do you say there? You are our joy. What a beautiful thing to say about his ministry to the Thessalonians, this church. You are my joy. I mean, I hope you can say that about this church. I can say that about you. You are my joy. I love being a member of this church. I love the other members of this church. It is a joy to be part of this church. But in addition, he says you are our, our crown. Now, I think he's leaning on this image that, that was read in the call to worship that we have this image that these elders sit in, in, the, in the heavens 
with Jesus because we don't have a works theology that says, I'm doing things to earn God's love for me. You cannot actually earn God's love. God's love is poured out on you. Now, as the people of God, we have this amazing gift that we get to enjoy God and serve God and even please God and do things for God. And even those things that we do where Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. We take all those treasures and all those crowns and we get to lay them at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's what he has in mind here. This thing that he got to do in Thessalonica, when he gets to see Jesus, he gets to say, thank you Jesus for doing this amazing thing that is planting this church in Thessalonica. Thank you, Lord. But he also says that they are his hope. And when I think he talks about hope, he doesn't mean in the sense that they are his salvation. They're not going to save him. Ministry doesn't save anybody. Ministry doesn't, doing things for Jesus doesn't save you. I think he actually means that these people are the evidence, the hope, because that's what hope in the biblical sense can also mean. These, are ev- these people are evidence that God is at work. These are people who didn't know Jesus. He shows up in Thessalonica. He tells them the truth. They become Christians, and then there's a church. That's how church planting works, right? That's how, how the gospel goes forth, you know? Uh, I knew a guy who was a missionary. Well, he wasn't a missionary. He was a national in India. They did this thing that we affectionately called the rope show. Uh, and they would have these kids come in and do sort of rope tricks in the village. And then everybody would show up. And then they'd preach the gospel. And they'd invite people to come to a Bible study. So the rope was the sort of thing that drew them in. And they just bicycle from town to town. We called it the rope show because one time I was in downtown Seattle and there were some break dancers. And this guy comes up and he has a giant cowboy hat and the biggest belt buckle I've ever seen. And he begins to quote Scripture after Scripture out of the King James and preaches the Gospel. He let the uh, break dancers who were not in any way associated or affiliated with him be the rope show that drew the crowd in and then he began to preach. And so affectionately we called that the rope show from then on out, me and some friends, when someone would do something that would get people to come and hear. But anyways, that's a miracle, Right? This crazy guy, Paul, shows up, tells people, Jesus rose from the dead. He'll forgive you from your sin, for your sins, change your life, and people say, yeah, I'm in. And the next thing you know, you have this church that's deeply devoted to Jesus and His Gospel. It is evidence. We have seen evidence in this church. We've seen the Spirit move. We've seen the Spirit heal. We've seen people get saved. We've seen people get baptized. God has spoken to us, and God has spoken through us. This church is evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And I hope you see that. For you are our glory and our joy. Amazing thing for a pastor to say. Uh, Verse 1 in chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Sacrifice. We don't do well with loneliness anymore. We got all the, the fluorescent lights running and your, your Netflix on your telephone. You watch movies on your telephone. That didn't make any sense in 1985, but you know exactly what I mean at this point in time, right? We're not very good at being alone anymore. We're not very good at being quiet anymore. We're not good at attending to the things of Jesus anymore. We, we don't take a moment to sit and be still and turn off the fluorescent lights and put the phone in the other room and just stop and think about the wonder and the beauty of our Lord. Again, it's not all satanic, but I think there's some satanic tricks in there, to be honest with you. I would really encourage you, take some time every day to think about the cross. Think about the resurrection. Talk to Jesus. He is listening. Read His Word. Uh, but Paul's really talking about being alone in Athens. He's, being di- he's willingly having the sacrifice of being ditched 
in Athens to send Timothy out for a purpose. There's a sacrifice in the sending and there's a sacrifice in the staying. Our brother and God's co-worker in the Gospel. Did you hear what he just said, by the way? God's co-worker in the Gospel. That is a mighty phrase. He is saying that Timothy, doing the things of Jesus, isn't just doing stuff for Jesus, but gets to be God's co-worker. When you go and tell someone who doesn't know about Jesus, about Jesus, you get to be God's co-worker. When you sit down and disciple somebody else, you get to be God's co-worker. When you get to pray for other people, you get to be God's co-worker. This is a mighty and crazy thing. Why in the world would we waste our time watching Seinfeld when we have this opportunity to go and be God's coworker? Why would we have ambitions anything short of serving the Lord as the gospel goes forth? And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. He came to, to help them. To, to encourage them, uh, to correct them, and to help them be firm in their trust of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? They needed it. And so do you. Why? That no one be moved by these afflictions. The heat's getting turned up. It's getting hard to be a Christian. There are sacrifices being made for these people. It's ra- ra- uh, relationally costly. It's personally costly. It could be financially costly. They are sacrificing for Christ. And the problem is, you sacrifice enough and at some point in time, you might, a person might, I'm praying this is not your question, but a person might begin to stop. And this is what Paul's thinking here. A person begins to stop and say, is this really worth it? Is Jesus really worth it? Is it really worth following Him? This is costly. This is painful. The the heat is on. And and the reality is is that Timothy comes to tell them the truth. And the truth is this. That when I have Jesus, I have everything. We're going to look at this in a second. But really the cost of foregoing sacrifice is turning from Jesus and turning to the world. The cost in life is turning from the world and turning to Jesus. This means in this life, there will be sacrifices, but when we see Him for who He is, we understand that in Christ, I have absolutely everything. And if I have absolutely everything in Christ, that means no matter what else you take away from me, you haven't actually taken anything away from me. You can take my things, you can take my health, you can take my stuff, you can take my life, and I have Christ. And if it's between that or Him, have it. So he's worried about them though. Because this is real. These are things that are easy to say. Easy enough to say. On a Sunday morning when there's enough money in your bank account to pay the bills. When your health is good enough that you're not in pain. And life seems to be going okay. It's a whole other thing when your boss finds a way that's not going to get them in trouble to say, if you talk about Jesus again, I'm going to fire you. It's a whole other thing when someone looks at you. Again, this is, this is America 2018. This doesn't happen as much. It's happening more. Someone says, you love Jesus? I'm going to beat you up. They usually use more colorful language than that, but 
you know what I mean, right? People are aggressively against the gospel and want to fight you because you love Jesus, right? Sometimes there is a cost to these things. It is easy to say sacrifice until you actually have to sacrifice. And friends, if we're being faithful to Christ, you will sacrifice. And when you understand that sacrifice comes in Christ, there is a joy when we lay it down for Him. There is. There's a power in it. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. You don't put that on a track, by the way. You don't put that on a little gospel presentation. By the way, follow Jesus and suffer. Yay! We've peddled something else. Follow Jesus and you'll be healthy and wealthy and everything's going to be fine. I'm telling you, follow Jesus. And in the eternal sense, when Jesus comes and vindicates the righteous and puts the world back the way it's supposed to be, everything is going to be fine. He has you in trial and suffering and when everything seems like it's going wrong and when you're knee deep in, in the hardest parts of a broken world, when you can cling to Jesus, there's still joy and happiness. There's not necessarily health and wealth. But there's hope. There's nearness. There's closeness. And I, I believe God heals. I believe He answers those prayers. Do not hear me wrong. But there are times when He does and there's times when He doesn't. And there are just, frankly, even when he does, there are going to be times when we suffer. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. He, made this, he cared so much about them, he made this sacrifice that somehow the tempter, that's Satan, had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is his concern, that they're going to fall away. He sends Timothy. So in this narrative, in this story, I think we see a few things. First and foremost, uh, in Christ, we will make if you're a Christian, I think this applies to all of you, and as he said, uh, I told you what was going to happen. We will make relational sacrifices. And this can come in a few ways. The reality is it's really easy to show up here, and it's good, so don't stop doing it, right? It's easy to come here on a Sunday when everything's going well, to shake hands, give hugs, drink coffee, sit in a comfortable chair. Uh, that's great, right? This is the easy part in that sense, provided you don't have any relational tension with anybody in the room you need to resolve. And if so, you talk to Jesus about it. Okay? Okay. There's relational sacrifice when someone needs you at three in the morning. There's relational sacrifice when someone's kids in the hospital for a really long time. It costs us something to love and serve each other. It does. And it should. It should actually take something of our life and of our time in the easy chair watching Seinfeld that we let that go to help other people follow Jesus. Not only that, but as you grow near and dear to people, Sometimes people do things that make us have to say gospel goodbyes. So I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have a couple of really dangerous spots in this church. One is that bookshelf back there. And one is our bookshelf downstairs. You might know this or not know this, but our kids, maybe your kids, you should know this, are checking out books and asking their parents questions like, Papa, does the China Inland Mission still exist? And if so, how, how can I help? You know, these missionary biographies that, that kids are beginning to read, and, and uh, the grown-up version up here. The thing is, is when your kids begin to read these things, they actually catch a vision for what God is doing on planet Earth 
they may say a gospel goodbye to you and you never see them again this side of heaven. And that costs something. Now, when we're living in reality, that's a celebration. Right? That is a joy. But the reality is these books are dangerous back here. You pick one of these up and you might realize that God's actually calling you to put everything you'd have down to go and follow Jesus to the ends of the earth and do what He said He did and live out the Great Commission. Jesus may be calling you personally to make great sacrifices of your comfort and your possessions so that dead people might live and people would come to know Jesus. I am praying that we raise up a whole generation of young people in this church who are ready to lay their lives down for the Gospel. I am praying that catches with us old folks and we realize that there are lives that we have that are wasted if we are not giving them for Jesus. I am hoping to just blow on the fire of that little kindling getting going that we would be lit up for the nations and for our own nation and our own region and for our neighbors. I'm praying that for us. The reality is in following Jesus, there will be some gospel goodbyes though. There are times when you have to say, I love you and I might never ever see you again. Right? That's, that, that's a relational sacrifice. There's sacrifice in sending. There's sacrifice in not sending. Uh, next, in Christ, we step into a cosmic battle against Satan. You living your life not following Jesus, Satan doesn't really care about you as long as you're not following Jesus. He's happy. End of story. As a Christian person, when you're not living in the reality that you are an indwelt son or daughter of God Most High, that the Holy Spirit is empowering you to live for Jesus on planet Earth, when you let dust grow on your Bible, as the famous Kitty Wills song says, as you just sort of casually are involved in the church, Satan's actually pretty happy with that. Satan's pretty happy with your complacency. He's pretty happy with your comfort. He's pretty happy when your big concern in life is your, is your retirement fund, your bass boat, uh, your next vacation, or how you're going to get the next promotion. He's, he's actually pretty happy about that. Again, Martin Luther said, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Satan is afraid of all of you. Because at any minute, one of you or all of us can live out the Great Commission. And that is a dangerous thing. It is a dangerous thing when you and I pray big prayers for India or China or the Congo or wherever. It is a dangerous thing. And to be a Christian and to be living for Jesus and to be on fire for Jesus means you're stepping out on the battlefield and you have a target on your back. Good news is Jesus wins. Good news is Jesus has won. The good news is we belong to the King who's already defeated Satan. The good news is that we are in the process of living out God vanquishing the powers and authorities and rulers, but they're still real. They still hate you. They still want you to die, and they still don't want you to love Jesus. Paul says they hindered him. Next. In Christ, we have signed up for sacrifice. There's reality and there's complacency. If we're actually living in the wake of reality, we understand that Jesus has risen from the dead. And all power and authority on heaven and earth have been given to us and that we should go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. We understand that as, as Romans chapter 8 tells us, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We understand that God has a plan in this world and He's going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. And even if we lose our life for in His service in this life, we have life forever with Him forever and ever. 
And then there's complacency where we just say, yeah, I'm just going to keep doing whatever. I'm not caring. And Yeah, I go to church on Sunday and I, you know, I tithe and I do whatever. <sighs> that other stuff, that's for the missionaries. Let them go. Let them be on fire for Jesus. You go. You go and I'll send you a check for 10 bucks a month. Do that, by the way. If you send 50 bucks to a church planter in rural India, you pay for his whole family and his whole church plant. His 50, that 50 bucks goes a long way, so I'm not blowing it off. I'm not blowing off you sacrificially giving to the work of the ministry in this church, the gospel can go forth here. I'm not blowing off you showing up here to worship the risen Christ here. What I'm saying is if when we actually have a glimpse of the king and his beauty, our life can get nuts in the best possible way. This quote comes from one of my favorite books, uh, by a guy named Howard Guinness. He wrote it in 1936. It was last published in 1975. It is a little dusty, but I want you to hear the power of his words when he understands what we're talking about here. Again, written in 1936. He asked this question. This is the question he's asking in light of reality. If Jesus is risen from the dead, if Jesus is returning, uh, if the nations are dying all around us, if people need Jesus, this is what he asks. Where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? Where are those who will lose their lives for Christ's sake, finding them uh, uh, lives cheap, Christ's sake, filling them, uh, uh, there we go, flinging them away for love of Him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in His service? Where are His lovers, those who love Him and the souls of men more than their own? own reputations or comfort or very life? Where are the men who say no to self, who take up Christ's cross, who bear it after Him, who are willing to be nailed to it in the college or office, home or mission field, who are willing, if need be, to bleed, to suffer, and to die on it? Where are the men of vision today? Where are the men who have seen the King in His beauty, by whom from henceforth all else is counted but refuge that they may know uh, that they may win Christ. Where are the adventurers, the explorers, the pioneers for God who count one human soul of far greater value than the rise and fall of an empire? Where are the men of glory and God-sent loneliness, difficulties, persecutions, misunderstandings, discipline, sacrifice, and death? Where are the men who are willing to pay the price for vision? Where are the men of prayer? Where are the men who, like the psalmist of old, count God's Word of more importance to them than their daily food? Where are the men who, like Moses, commune with God face-to-face as a man speaks with his friend and unmistakably uh, bear with them the fragrance of the meeting through the day? Where are God's men in this day of God's power? And I would say that was written in 1936. So please insert where are the men and women, <laughs> which he does start with but drops off, where are the men and women in this day of God's power. If we believe the truth of the Gospel, we will do crazy things to the world. Things that seem crazy to the world, we will have sacrifice. We will know we have signed up for sacrifice. And finally, in Christ, our sacrifice is rooted in the Gospel, which is implicit, and the end game of reality, which is explicit in the return of Christ here. If you'd go with me to Matthew chapter 16. Again, we are here to talk about this reality, that our sacrifice for Christ is rooted in the reality of the gospel in his return. Verse 21. 
From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day and raised. For a second temple Jewish person, the idea that the Messiah has come to suffer, die, and lose is a foreign concept. It's all over the Bible, but no one had seen it yet. Now, so Jesus has said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to die. Brief, right? And Peter, okay, Peter. Usually we look at Peter and say, man, Peter's a dum-dum. And he is sometimes. Often, in fact, he is a dum-dum. But I think when we're being honest, or at least when I'm being honest, I'll own it. I see a lot of myself in Peter. And I think Peter, in his kindness, has been clear to the early church and passed down to us about what he missed so that we don't miss it too. And Peter took him, that's Jesus, by the way, aside and began to rebuke him. Like I said, that's Jesus, by the way, that he is rebuking. Saying, far be it for you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Don't you get it, Jesus? It's about our best life now. It's about comfort. It's about power. It's about building an empire. It's about possessions. It's about things. You're the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs don't suffer. But he, again, that's Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me. What does he say? Satan. This is important. Our love of comfort, our love of self, our love of reputation, our love of possessions, our love of fill something in this blank other than Jesus. And by that I mean in the really literal sense, that when we're elevating something above Jesus in our lives, this is satanic. We are in league with Satan saying, Satan, you're right. Jesus isn't that great. Now, that doesn't mean you have stuff. That doesn't mean you run out and burn your board games and and your life should be horrible and miserable. Our life should actually have joy. Jesus has probably blessed you. You live in 2018. Jesus has blessed you with things. You may have been blessed with an automobile that works. You may have been Blessed with a home without a leaky roof. You may have, you may not, right? But if you have those things, you don't look at those things and say, oh, I should probably find a house with a leaky roof and go out of my way to suffer. But we remember that this house belongs to Jesus. It's used for His service. This car belongs to Jesus. It's to be used for His service. I'm going to play Monopoly with my kids to His glory because it's Thanksgiving, praise the Lord, right? You're going to play Monopoly or Risk for hours and hours and hours. Forget how to play Walk away because pie gets served. And it doesn't matter because you're doing it for fun. We're Christians. We should actually be marked by having a lot of fun. In fact, as Christians, we should be marked by having a lot of fun in the midst of trial. But anyways, Peter's on one side, sort of in league with Satan here. And Jesus is saying there's something better. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Things of man, things of God. Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. When you choose Jesus, you might lose the love of self, the love of comfort, the love of things that are the center of your life. And you may actually have to put all those things aside to follow Christ. In fact, you will. They all have to go in the right place, and many of those things will have to go. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
if you set everything aside, you will get your life. So you try and save your life and the things of your life, you will lose everything. You will lose out following the world. But if you forego the world, you will win by following Jesus. You will find your life. I got those reversed, by the way. Sorry. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What do you get if you get everything, but you don't get Jesus? You get nothing. You chase after everything else and don't get Jesus, you get nothing. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will pray each person according to what he has done. Those who he loves, he is well done, good and faithful servant. Now, sometimes we hold this intention with what Jesus also says. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you say, well, Jesus, I thought you said your yoke was easy. What do you mean I have to bear my cross? Those don't seem to jive. Here's the thing. When you die to self, when you die to love of you uh, rather than everything else, when you bear that on your cross, when you live for Jesus instead of yourself, yes, it goes on the cross. You're going to bear your cross, but in bearing that cross, you find freedom in a yoke light, a, 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 a light yoke. So here's what I mean by that. There is a freedom in dying to a love of self. You begin to see how petty and small your life is apart from Christ. And even if you lose everything but get Christ, you get everything out of the deal. And there's freedom. And and that yoke is light because you get liberated from, from what everybody else thinks about you. You get liberated from a love of stuff and trying to cling on to those things. You get liberated from, from, from keeping up with the Joneses. You get liberated from playing king of the mountain with everybody else in the whole world, and you get Jesus. And that is a light burden. When you don't care what anybody else thinks, if they're talking in the ways of the world and you only care what Jesus says and people who are talking in the Spirit and sharing Scripture and truth with you, when you don't care what everybody else thinks of you, is there not freedom there? There is. We care about what everybody else thinks an awful lot, and you know it, and so do I. There is a freedom and a recklessness when you know that I am approved of by King Jesus, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. That's a crazy, reckless, gospel-centered, wonderful place to be, where you're not afraid anymore to speak the truth and to tell people about Jesus. To follow Jesus is to follow Him into sacrifice. We follow him into a sacrifice for the brothers and sisters. We lay down our lives so other people can know Jesus more. We lay down our lives for the people in the church. We do things that are uncomfortable to help people. We go out of our way to serve one another uh, and to be kind with one another, uh, even when we don't want to. Uh, We love our brothers and sisters even when they're not being lovable or lovely. That takes sacrifice. We sacrifice for the kingdom. God is pushing the borders of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. The, The light is being pushing to the ends of the darkness is being pushed back. Now there is sacrifice to say, all right, Jesus, the pillar of smoke's going that way. I'm going with you. I might have to sell all my stuff. I might have to change my job. I might have to change my life. I might have to rearrange things. I might have to do a lot of things. But wherever we're going, Jesus, I'm going with you and the kingdom's going forward. In addition to that, there's sacrifice for the lost. If you're not in here today, if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, we're so thankful you are here. The reality is there's a world full of people who need Jesus. And God's chosen design for the gospel going forth is His church laying their lives down for other people 
sacrificing for other people so that they might know that Jesus saved sinners from death to life, that he rose from the dead, and he is the one true God, and he'll save you right now. Are you, Restoration Road, making sacrifices in your life in light of reality, in light of who he is? Are you making sacrifices for the church? Are you making sacrifices for the kingdom? Are you willing to pick up one of these books and say, all right, Jesus, my whole life belongs to you. If you want me to go to Papua New Guinea, I'm going to Papua New Guinea. Are you willing to let your children read dangerous books and they might tell you that they want to go to Papua New Guinea? Are you willing to make sacrifices for the kingdom? Are you willing to make sacrifices for the lost? If you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, we again are so thankful you're here. I need to tell you, you you don't come in here and get your life cleaned up and get right with Jesus and be a Christian so people say, oh, he's a good person or she's a good person or whatever. We come to Jesus with empty hands. We don't come in and put on our Sunday best. We come into Jesus with empty hands and he fixes us and he changes us and he liberates us and he forgives us and he makes us his own and and he, he takes us and he changes everything about us and he sets us free. If you don't know him, today is the day. Be safe. If you're in here today and you're a Christian and you say, yeah... I think my life's a little bit more about the couch in Seinfeld than it is about sacrifice and a radical life for Christ. What needs to change today? What needs to change right now? Like, before you leave here today, who do you need to talk to, pray with, think about? What needs to change in your life that you would give your life actively in following Christ? And if you're in a day, and this describes you more than it doesn't, and I never mean that you're batting a thousand when I say anything like that, but you are ready and willing to live and, and lay your life down for Christ, how are you going to give of yourself to help other people follow Jesus? Let's pray.